is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms for a time But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Well, welcome back to the Decode podcast, Batuta Advocates, I guess you'd say insider, outsider analysis of the federal election and federal politics. It's a wild world out there. There's a lot of language that gets thrown around in politics that keeps people out of touch, out of the inner circle, out of the Canberra bubble. And that's quite often where the politicians want us to be. They want us talking about the culture wars and they want us uh, talking about you know the, the character assassinations of these people that decide to be politicians. We don't hear too much about policy and we don't hear too much about what the parties stand for. Now, so far in the election campaign, one dark horse that has emerged through it all is these teal independents. So they've got the Liberal Party stressing the likes of Allegra Spender, Zali Stegel, Zoe Daniels, and many more. They're running about 20. And the Liberal Party are really worried they're going to lose, you know, inner city seats to climate change focused corporate women who actually look a lot like the old Malcolm Turnbull brand of the Liberal Party, which, you know, a, a lot of these uh, fiscally conservative inner city types yeah. would prefer. However, what a lot of people aren't talking about is the fact that the Labor Party is kind of facing a similar threat from progressive candidates in the shape of their age-old little siblings known as the Australian Greens. This election, as is the case every election, several Labor MPs are sitting ducks for the Greens who are working towards picking up a few more seats in the federal parliament. Now, today's guest is gunning for perhaps the most marginal of them all, the seat of Cooper in Victoria, which takes in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Today's guest is a First Nations woman, a unionist, a feminist author. That all checks out for the Greens. But the unionist thing, we'll get into that a bit later. Not what we would readily associate with the Greens. It's it's almost, some would say, uh, a bit of a refreshing inclusion in the party. She's lived in the electorate for 20 years and is ready to make the very unpleasant career decision to move to Canberra and represents her constituents federally. Celeste Little, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. (laughs) Now, the first question is, uh, you're actually one of a couple Indigenous candidates we've interviewed on the Decode podcast, so we'll start there. Who's, Who's your mob? Where's your family from? Sorry, that's definitely a Tiger Bales opening. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, look, my mob, I'm an Arunda woman from Central Australia, so tr- my traditional lands are Mbantua or Alice Springs and then east and southeast of there. Littles are a huge Central Australian family, but on my Nana's side, I'm also a Perkins, so right. I am... Related to half of Central Australia, pretty much. And mum's side are Clifton Hillborn Collingwood supporters. So, you know, not so much a mob, but kind of in a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, uh, it's definitely a demographic that uh, exists down there and, and remains strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, can you tell us, how did a trade unionist end up 
getting tangled up in the greens, you know, a party that in Melbourne especially is associated with olive chinos and Birkenstocks. <laughs> Look, it's been a very long story because anyone who knows me and has been following me and my writings for years knows that I've said so many times there is no way in hell that I would ever run for politics. But that changed last year. COVID, growing disparities in communities, you know, things like the bushfires, floods a bit later and all of that kind of tipped my hand and made me, made the penny drop for me um, because I'm a grassroots activist um, who strongly believes in grassroots action. But the penny drop with regards to the fact that only a relative handful of people make decisions in this country that impact the lives of millions. So we need more people on the floor impacting those decisions. Yeah, yeah. the Greens and being a unionist and all of that, I've worked for one union and I'm a member of two others and I'm a donator to an, a fourth union. Out of those four unions I'm associated with, three of them aren't affiliated with the Labor Party. So, you know, whether that's for ideological reasons, you know, not tying their members up to a political party and giving people the choice to kick whatever powers they need in, or, in order to get better workplace conditions or, yeah, well, there's a number of reasons. That's the main reason. But, yeah, um, unions that I work with and have been a member of, um, most of them aren't affiliated with the ALP. But the Greens, as far as their politics and their policies and that go, you know, mostly align with things that I've been talking about for a pretty long time as an activist and in the public eye. So there was that. And there was also um, this particular seat, which is the most progressive voting seat in the country. And being a long-term resident of it, really wanting there to be some sort of democratic choice yeah. in this seat. Because in the years that I've lived here, um, it was mainly a safe labor seat until about just a decade ago. And you know, seeing that challenge and seeing that excitement, seeing people actually want to go to the polling booths and cast their vote here, it just hasn't happened. So having people here in a community that I care about being really excited about the opportunity to cast their vote and to have a choice at the ballot and a choice, you know, that is progressive. And we do have other progressives running in this seat. So it's kind of the choice that people in the seat deserve, finally. Now, you mentioned it, you know, about a decade ago, things started to get a bit greener in the electorate of Cooper. Was it a 2016 election, Labor only held on by about 1%. They kind of had a bit of a lift in 2019. That was probably because the Labor leader at the time was from Melbourne and uh, got everyone's hopes up that they might have a Victorian Prime Minister, which uh, was not the case. Now you're running at it again. As we said at the start of this interview, you're perhaps the most marginal. You're not one of those candidates that they're running in one of those safe liberal seats just for a young kid to have like a little frolic in university. This is the real deal. You could be packing your bags and moving to Canberra in a few months' time. Is there a little feeling, you know, as exciting as this all is, that by taking a Labor seat from Albanese, you'll be weakening his ability to replace your common enemy, which is Scott Morrison? Does the Greens taking seats from Labor kind of undermine the idea of a tide rising together? Or do you actually want to boot Labor out as well, as much as the Liberals? I wouldn't say that I want to boot Labor out. I want a Labor government, but I want a Labor government that is actually 
acting progressive and and pushing towards progressive ideals. And when you see their climate target um, falling short of what's actually really needed in order to reverse the climate emergency, and you see Albanese coming out with statements just this past week about how anyone who comes with by a boat will not be resettled in Australia with regards to refugee rights. It's clear to me that if we do have a Labor government, that we actually need a crossbench that's strong and progressive in order to push Labor back towards the left, because at the moment they seem to be lurching right. We've already got a right-wing party in the coalition, so we don't need that. And we need a party that is appealing more towards progressive politics. A lot of people have struggled these last couple of years. There's so much that needs to be done. And so that's a dynamic that I'm actually interested in, being a crossbencher and and forcing Labor, maybe dragging them a bit, kicking and screaming back towards the left so that they're looking towards social policy and and caring for communities as opposed to what they're doing right now. Um, I did want to really quickly cover, yeah, it was, you were pretty right with your analysis. So it was um, 2016, Greens won the primary vote in this seat, but lost the seat on um, Liberal preferences flowing to Labor. So we had David Feeney returned as the member then. Um, prior to that, we had Martin Ferguson. Um, the, one of the biggest reasons why the margin grew in this seat so much, you know, in the last federal election was that the Labor Party finally put in a progressive candidate. Jed Carney is the sitting member, ALP member here. And she's, you know, a wonderful woman, former ACTU president, another unionist. So, you know, ANMF before that, a nurse, yeah. They finally, through the pressure from the left in this seat, they finally decided to pre-select a good, strong left-wing candidate. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a choice on the left for the voters. Yeah. Do you think that this move that Labor's had towards the right is, you know, just more of a stunt to try and win office because, you know, as, as we saw what happened last time was quite a binary choice between left and right where kind of this time we've got two parties kind of near the center both kind of leaning right do you think that labor will snap back to its more traditional values if they win office not without pressure the previous labor government cut funding to higher education continued things like the northern territory intervention under a different name with stronger futures you know, had pretty appalling refugee rights policies and <laughs> were trying to extend them. So, yeah, I don't think that they will snap back to the left without pressure. Yeah. I think that you do need strong pressure in order to make them do that. Because right now, I think what they're trying to do is play to what they perceive middle Australia to be and playing to win that. The core values are being forgotten and that's a problem. Now, as someone with the family tree that you have, you mentioned before you've got Perkins in the family and Little as well, lots of family out in the Territory, lots of family in the bush. I'm, I'm sure you're kind of familiar with walking in two worlds as a uh, inner-city Melbourne girl uh, with family that live a very different life. We know that Coburg is not Alice Springs. Do you think you add a bit of an outsider perspective to the Greens HQ, which, as we mentioned earlier, 
may be a little bit uh, Melbourne Uni-centric. <laughs> I, I, I will correct um, Preston rather than Coburg. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, to a degree. We do have a really strong caucus, if you like, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members within the Greens. So there's quite a few of us who are continually doing that walk and feeding back into Greens policies from... Mbantwa to, to Preston, like the sort of perspective that gives me is obviously the ability to see the difference between what's happening up there, um, how people are struggling, you know, what sort of racism plays out there versus what sort of racism plays out here. Um, you know, there's systemic racism up there and there's blatant racism up there. There, there is both down here, but in different forms. And Certainly, you know, you find that within progressive movements, whether it's the Greens or the Labor movement or whatever else, that you're always needing to challenge that racism to re-educate, to say, well, you know, these are the perspectives you're not listening to. And, you know, that ability to move between two such different landscapes, to be tied, you know, intricately into one by thousands of generations, but also then to have a 30-year history with Melbourne itself is kind of um, cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how else to put it. You know, it's such a, it seems like such a trite word. But, yeah, um, it does provide a perspective. I'm also someone, you said Melbourne Uni Centre. I'm a graduate of Melbourne Uni as well <laughs> as Trobe and Monash. So, you know, I've got the university experience and um, have seen, you know, how those perspectives play out in Melbourne. The one thing I will say about this particular seat, as well as being one of the most multicultural seats in the sort of inner city area, the neighbouring one, Wills, is also quite multicultural, but this one also has quite a high Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population. And, you know, a lot of them are traditional owners from Victoria, but some of them are like me and have come from elsewhere and made this our home away from home for a long time so we do get the opportunity to actually have exchange and interaction between a lot of different indigenous perspectives in this seat as well which is awesome i want to talk a little bit about the indigenous perspective in melbourne outside of the greens you know as a party in the history of post-settlement literature and music Melbourne has featured the likes of Archie Roach, Dan Sultan, lots of different voices and stories and perspectives have come out of there. But it doesn't ring the same way as Redfern or or West End or some of these communities that are very politically active and and are looked to as kind of uh, engine rooms. So what has life been like down there and and who do you kind of speak to and, and answer to when you are talking community stuff in Melbourne? Yeah, look, I think a lot of the reason why it doesn't is due to whitewashing because there is a long, proud activist tradition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in Melbourne and it's tied a lot with, well, as Daniel Sultan sung about, um, another Arunda person, (laughs) Daniel Sultan sung about, um, 
you know, old Fitzroy old and Fitzroy. the communities that were sort of living around there. And a lot of those people came from all over this state, you know, traditional owner groups from all over this state, funneled into places like Fitzroy and Collingwood, um, you know, grew up in what was then the slums. Clem and Ken. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, yeah. Then the slums, you know, or considered that way, but was actually quite a vibrant community where a lot of political activity was happening, whether it was, um, yeah, people meeting in trade union bars and deciding what they were going to do next or whatever else. But this seat here is named after William Pooper, an amazing Yorta Yorta activist, moved to Melbourne as an elderly man because on mission you couldn't access the aged care pension. So I moved down here, you know, in order to be able to access a pension and to be able to live. And then while he was here, he was pretty famous, not just for being one of the key organisers in the first day of mourning protest in 1938, which has then become you know, two different things. It's become the ongoing Invasion Day protest, which we pack out to the tune of nearly 100,000 each year here in Melbourne and NAIDOC week. So that's the two events. Initial day of mourning protest became. But he also was famous and well recognised for delivering a um, private citizen protest to the German consulate here in Melbourne against the persecution of Jews during the Kristallnacht event. So, you know, he's recognised across the world. He also set up a number of these um, institutions that exist to this day. Um, one of them just down the road from me here, Victorian Aborigines Advancement League. So, you know, it's between that and the activism that set up things like the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, the legal service, you know, um, and then that community of old Fitzroy and how people when they did come to Melbourne, they sort of came to those places and found community, found mob. It's pretty important. But I think that a lot of that stuff has been a bit whitewashed. I certainly didn't have the opportunity to be taught about the activism that had gone down in the city when I was still at high school. We weren't taught about William Cooper. We weren't taught about, you know, Marge Tucker and all that sort of stuff. I just want to take a moment now to go back to um, the lead up to the last election where a lot of uh, people in the Greens, they marched from down south up to central Queensland as a part of the Stop Adani mine. I just would like uh, a little bit of insight into what the Greens are doing this time around in their relationship with more regional communities. Yeah, I mean, they are working with some of these groups. So the Wangan and Jagalingu people um, who are protesting the Adani mine on their traditional lands and trying to make sure that protests do happen, you know, in consultation and collaboration with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The same goes with, with things like the Beedaloo Basin Fracking Project. Yep. So, so consulting with traditional owners up there and ensuring that actions that are taken are done in consultation. But the Greens in this election have pointed out that there are 114 new coal and gas projects that the Coalition and Labor currently support and are bringing in. 
And we're saying no to those 114 new coal and gas projects. We should be moving away from coal and gas and you know fossil fuels in general and towards renewables. And so any protests that we do engage in or any consultation that we do engage in needs to be done hand in hand with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, we do have a big First Nations policy that has been developed by the First Nations group of the Greens and then passed at National Council, which also talks about, you know, the importance of truth-telling and treaty. And that's got to inform any sort of processes that we engage in. Like, you know, you're talking treaty, what you're actually talking about is um, land rights and respecting those rights that the first peoples of this land have over those landscapes. So so you can't go up there and protest without doing it in consultation and making sure that you're actually advancing that push for the recognition of sovereignty. With the working towards treaty for First Nations people, for the listeners in the tractors, you know, Batuta's core demographic here, can you explain the current model of treaty that you're pushing for because the media and the major parties obviously aren't going near it. You know, is this the Uluru Statement of the Heart? What is coming out of the Black Caucus of the Greens right now? There has been a lot of media coverage this past week, and I've read some stuff that has just really made me um, cringe and shake my head, including an idea that the Greens were going to vote with One Nation to block a voice to parliament, which just is not accurate. Um, the voice to parliament is part of the Uluru Statement. In fact, the Uluru Statement outlines voice treaty truth as the steps. The Black Greens, however, strongly believe that before we get to the voice, we actually need a truth-telling process in this country. You know, I'm I said before that I went all the way through school without learning about the activism of William Cooper and other figures that were around old Fitzroy. I certainly didn't learn about the huge amount of massacres that have happened in Victoria and the fact that there are so many sites and so many examples of this. And I um, descend from stolen generations. My grandmother was a stolen generations woman. We need that truth-telling process. We need to be negotiating treaties and probably recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights because the Terra Nullius myth is still very much permeating the culture of this country, whether it's parliament and the way it's set up and the instalment of the constitution or it's the way people view, view it. We're having to try and get things like the frontier wars actually acknowledged. You know, we need that truth-telling process and then we need to come to the table as equal stakeholders and negotiate ways forward. And it's my view and the view of a lot of others in, in the Black Greens that a voice to parliament or a voice within parliament can be negotiated through a treaty process. This country really does, like we see over in Aotearoa, need to have a bunch of agreements and obligations that it adheres to. 
and is required to adhere to when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. We, we've continually been the victims of revolting legislation imposed upon us. I mentioned the intervention, but, you know, the community development programs, another one. Um, the welfare quarantining was tested on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities through the basics card before it was rolled out more broadly. We've continually had to deal with these sorts of legislations being imposed upon us without consultation and treaty forces that consultation to happen. A voice by itself simply isn't going to do that, particularly if it's just a voice that isn't democratically selected by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and has no legislative power. Yeah. I mean, the tackling revisionism is is an interesting platform because no one's really spoken about it like this in heading into an election with it as a policy. Now, I kind of want to ask you, and this might be an uncomfortable question because you are a member of the Greens, but how do you deal with that double-edged sword of allyship, allyhood? You know, you mentioned the whitewashing of old Fitzroy. Gentrification as well is an issue. You know, you've got people that you'll see down there on the Invasion Day rally, one of the 100,000 people you get in Melbourne who will also cross the street to avoid an old uncle walking down the road in Fitzroy. How do you tackle that kind of conditional support that you get from the Patagonia puffer vests of, of inner North Melbourne? Oh, and, and you know, I, I don't know that I could have put it more brilliantly than that, to be honest, because despite the fact that I, I'm definitely quite hard left, I've spent a lot of my time having to fight within the left, fight racism, fight buying into neoliberalism, those sorts of things, you know, continuously. And and that gentrification, um, that creep that you see happening in Melbourne, Northwoods, where communities that have been quite Indigenous, you know, that there are a lot of post-World War II migrants that live in this area as well. So old working class areas and how they're being gentrified and making sure that their voices are heard, but also making sure that areas like this don't actually become places where we just simply can't live anymore because of cost. So, you know, Things like building more public housing, creating more sustainable infrastructure and increasing wages and bolstering the social safety net through the taxation of billionaires is ways that we're trying to mitigate those sorts of things. There's so much that needs to be done to ensure that areas like this do stay accessible to so many people, the communities that they've served for such a long time. So you think by taxing billionaires... They won't be able to afford to buy their sons and daughters a little terrace flat in uh, Preston. Oh, look, you know, um, it'd be it'd be my ambition to tax them that much, but <laughs> I don't I don't think there should be billionaires. Yeah, billionaires yeah. existing at all is yeah, it's it's just astoundingly wrong, particularly as. We see homelessness rates go through the roof around here. You know, we see so many people who lost their jobs during COVID because there's a lot of artists, there's a lot of academics, and there's a lot of hospital workers that live in this area, and a lot of them ended up losing their jobs. And, and yet we still have billionaires in this society who increase their wealth under COVID. 
So I would I would happily tax a billionaire out of existence, um, but you know, at least getting them to pay something yeah. would be incredible because they're not contributing. <laughs> well, just to unpack this tax on the billionaires, is there like a, a fixed amount? Like, have the Greens? decided how much on top of this country's already extortionately high tax rates they're going to be paying? So, you know, 6% at least to then funnel it into things like the social safety net, like mental and dental health into Medicare and a vast increase in the amount of public housing. But yeah, the fact that we would even need to consider just taxing them 6% in the first place says how little they are actually contributing to the public purse at this point as they have been increasing their wealth during COVID. You want to tax billionaires, mental and dental, that's been actually a big yep. one on the front of the campaign. Uh, Adam Bant's been talking about that for months now, which you know kind of ties into this is where everyone's out after the pandemic and there's a lot more support needed and a lot more access needed to support. You talk a lot as well about the arts, which as we know, employs more people than coal mining and uh, are often called upon during bushfires and pandemics to keep us all happy, but are kind of left in the dark. What would you say in terms of supporting live music and arts? Because as we know, this this industry can actually run itself if we remove noise complaints from suburban pubs and the, the live music scene really does its own thing. What else have you got to kind of boost this industry? Yeah, look, Melbourne has one of the highest numbers of live music venues per capita in the world. And you walk around this place and you see that. And as a frequent punter of these places, a massive live music fan, I I mean, this is where I spend my free time. I'm out there seeing bands. But, you know, so many artists struggled during COVID. And you're right in that these are the same people which the minute there is a disaster are called upon to donate their time to donate their talent in order to raise money for for others and they do so proudly and happily but when it comes to rescuing the arts there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of investment in that like we need to be assisting live music venues and galleries in staying open we need to be um ensuring that playhouses and all of that are able to stay open. We need to invest monies back into the industry so that people are able to build up their arts practice after two years of being stuck at home, not being able to get out there and earn an income, you know, and are able to build their income back up and live again. Because it is, as you say, it is an industry that runs itself. It brings a lot of money in. Um, We punch so well above our weight on a global scale when it comes to the arts. Like the amount of artist imports that we get overseas is extraordinary. But yet, you know, when it comes to the arts, both the government and the opposition have have mainly been missing in action. There needs to be a lot more when it comes to grants and supporting the arts and supporting places to keep running. Yeah, you just mentioned there before that you spend your uh, free time in the lowly dive bar oasises of Melbourne. What kind of bands are you into? You mentioned before we, we sat down to do the interview that you come from a country music family, but you've maintained the punk rage. Who are your favourite bands now and who are your favourite bands of all time? Oh, favourite bands now. Look, there are so many bands that I adore and artists that I adore. I'm 
listing them is almost impossible. But yeah, I mean, if I'm thinking of bands that I love in Melbourne, bands like Cable Ties, like well, we've got we've got Slim Jeffries performing for us tomorrow night at a gig that myself and Lydia are running together. Love them. You know, I loved the Peep Temple. I was a bit massive Peep Temple fan and I've loved both Blake Scott's solo career since and um, Shepherd and Airplane, which part of the Peep Temple then went and formed. That piece are extraordinary. Um, <laughs> yeah, I could just sit here and reel off so many. Um, look, I recommend if people are on Bandcamp, they can actually look me up and see what I'm listening to because I've got so much mad respect for the Melbourne Line music scene. And how could I forget the Cosmic Psychos? My goodness, you know, icons, (laughs) absolute icons who influenced the Seattle grunge scene somehow from a tractor in in country victoria yeah so so you know it's there's just so many bands in this city um and bands in this country that i listen to and absolutely adore you know all-time favorite bands again i have a lot of trouble naming them but you know partial to a bit of buzzcocks love a bit of david bowie um you know, was a massive Pink Floyd fan growing up as a weird teenager. So I'd be wearing all my all my um, cheesecloth and listening to Floyd albums and yeah, yeah. Weren't we all? Weren't we all? <laughs> oh, oh, and Iggy Pop, of course. Yeah. You know that that wonderful raw chaos that Iggy Pop injected into the music scene and how that was running parallel with the raw chaos that was coming out of garages all across Australia at the same time. And so people like Iggy Pop became loved by by people in Australia to the point of where he always comes back here because he always knows that we'll he'll get a crowd. Like yeah. That, that, yeah. He's just like the punk version of Pink, I guess. <laughs> you know. Very big here. Now, just lastly, aside from the policies uh, we've mentioned above and your party's framework, what do people in Cooper want delivered the most if you were to get elected? What's their core issue? Yeah, look, the... People in Cooper, well, if we're going off Boat Compass, definitely the climate emergency. People are really concerned about the climate emergency and want strong action on climate change. The Greens are going for a 75% cut in emissions by 2030 and then net zero or net negative by um, 2035 with no new fossil fuel projects being opened up and training in that. To be honest, I also want to throw refugee rights in there because people in Cooper, as well as turning out to Invasion Day rallies, turn out for the rights of refugees. You know, just down the road from where I live here, there were men who'd been transferred here under um, the medical support program and just been locked in the hotel rooms. People want more humane refugee policies. They want Australia to actually adhere to our global obligations and look after those who come to this country from fleeing persecution from elsewhere. So yeah, I'd I'd say that those are a couple of things. I mean, definitely strong um, social safety nets another, but the climate emergency is one of the highest rated, it seems, with voters in this area. It sounds like you've got a piece of paper with a few dot points on it that you're going to take to Canberra. 
given the last year we've had, the last couple of years we had, and given the prevalence of uh, climate change-related policy in this election, it may very well be you that's uh, dropping the confetti uh, in three weeks' time. So we want to thank you for joining us today, Celeste Little, and wish you all the best. It is my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you.